This is an ABC podcast. You're 13 years old. You love to surf and you're really good at it. It's your whole life. Then one day, the unthinkable happens. A shark attack. It's what happened to Bethany Hamilton. She lost one arm to the shark, but somehow taught herself how to surf again. And she now competes as a pro against able-bodied surfers. You're going to meet her here in a moment on Sporty. Hello, I'm Amanda Smith. Also, the Women's T20 World Cup. For the final, the teams that everyone hoped for, Australia and India. For women in India, being professional cricketers can be socially transforming. Well, let me talk about the leg spinner of the team, Punam Yadav. You know, she comes from a lower background. Her father was a shopkeeper. When she got a contract with the Board of Control for Cricket in India, she bought her father a couple of cows. The cows have been productive and the family is earning a lot more money. They've also got a proper house now. So this is what is the social transformation. remember when the Australian surfer Mick Fanning managed to avoid being attacked by a shark at a World Surf League competition in South Africa five years ago? Well, he isn't the first and won't be the last surfer to face a shark in the ocean. Bethany Hamilton did when she was just 13 years old in 2003. She was surfing in Hawaii, where she grew up, and she was attacked by a four-metre tiger shark. Her left arm was entirely severed from just under the shoulder. Bethany is 30 now and she's in Australia competing in a number of World Surf League competitions. And there's a fantastic photograph of her taking a wave for you to have a look at on the Sporty homepage at the RN website. Lovely to have you join us here on Sporty, Bethany. Glad to be here. Thank you. Now, most people would think, how is it possible to surf, well, after being attacked by a shark and with just one arm, how did you, at 13 years old, decide that you could and would surf again? I guess my love for the ocean and riding waves outweighed my fear of sharks or just the fear of not being able to do it. So I gave it a go. And as soon as I stood up on my first wave, there was no turning back. Well, you were, before the the attack, you were a very promising junior in Hawaii. And there's lots of footage of you as a kid, you know, home movies, and it shows that you are really athletic and so confident in your body. After the attack, it was just four weeks and you were back in the waves, as you say. How long did it actually take you? Or how was hard was it to get up on the board again to do a one-armed pop-up? Yeah, so I started off on a, a long board, and, which I normally rode a short board. And then as the time went on, I continued to surf and adapt to a shorter and shorter board. And then eventually... I adapted to the balance of a smaller board and yeah, it was amazing. Like I even look back thinking like, how was I so resilient and just able to figure it out? And I guess I was just truly determined. And um, yeah, I think when you're young, you're just even that much more adaptable and resilient. So that was, I guess, one pro of being young and facing so much. 
The thing that was a struggle, though, was paddling out, wasn't it? Getting out through the waves to surf. Now, can you explain the small modification that your dad made to your surfboard? Yeah, so my dad was always watching me and cheering me on. And, you know, when I would have rough sessions or bad sessions, he felt the pain as much as I did, I think, if not more. And so he, he would see me struggling to get out to the um, lineup, especially in beach break where there was no channel. And so he saw on a lifeguard board, there was a, um, a handle on the lifeguard side of the lifeguard board. So it kind of clicked in his mind like, oh, I can make her a handle just so she can grasp the board better, just to be able to duck dive underneath the waves and get out to the lineup. Okay, so you could you could grab the handle in your right hand and that allowed you to, to duck dive. Yeah, and you know, I, I still use it this day, but it's not really necessary. But when the waves get really big and powerful, it just helps me to prevent the board from hitting my face or whacking me. <laughs> <laughs> well, you fought hard to then qualify for the world tour, which had always been your dream. Uh, you've had your competitive ups and downs. But to put your surfing ability into context for Australians, you have beaten Stephanie Gilmore and Tyler Wright, two Aussie world champions. Do you regard yourself, Bethany, as having a disability? Um, I always refer to myself as just adaptive. I guess I consider myself more able than the average human. Yeah, <laughs> Just I think because you are. of all that I can do. So to be able to surf against Tyler and stuff was a huge accomplishment. And over the last five years, I've put a lot of my emphasis in just truly adapting and making the most of what I have. Well, you have two children now, two little boys, and you surfed and competed through your pregnancies. Well, you know, why would that stop you? Nothing else has. (laughs) But again, how much adjustment was it to surf with a baby on board, so to speak? Oh my gosh, it was such a challenge. But growing up in Hawaii, I always would see pregnant women surfing. So Mm. once I was pregnant, I was like, well, that was what I was used to. And so I continued to surf. Well, what about getting back to serious surfing after you'd given birth? You know, you were competing seven weeks after you had your first child. Yeah, in hindsight, I wish I'd given myself more time. Um, (laughs) A lot of it was just, I didn't know what to expect, but I can remember the daunting feeling of like, oh my gosh, I have no core strength and had to rebuild my body's strength so that I can surf well. And I've always kind of thrived under challenge and um, I have done some of my best surfing ever since I've given birth to my boys. So it goes to show if you make the time for yourself to care for your body after birth, um, you can get to a healthy place. Well, now, apart from the, the competitive side of surfing, there are also, you know, those sorts of iconic wave breaks in various parts of the world that surfers are drawn to, including you. And one of those uh, has the, well, all too apposite name of Jaws. It's a massive wave off Maui in Hawaii. Tell us about surfing Jaws, Bethany. Oh, gosh. Ever since I was a young girl, I I was always drawn to big waves. So I always dreamed of surfing Jaws and I surfed over 40 foot waves um, out at Jaws. And I did get really pounded at one point when huge waves were breaking on my head and I would have to dive deep and hold my breath. And 
yeah, I got through it and um, had just like some of the most mesmerizing surfing of my life. And speaking of Jaws, how do you feel about sharks these days? Oh, I think they're really beautiful creatures and I think they should be protected. It's interesting, isn't it, that uh, you can feel that way after what a shark did to you? You know, I don't feel anger or hate towards the creature. And if anything, we're going into their home environment. And I love being in the ocean because it's a place where you can truly be present and just embrace the beauty of the ocean and riding waves. And so I'm thankful that I get to spend my time out there. And Bethany Hamilton is a pro surfer and the subject of a documentary called Unstoppable that's screening in cinemas around the country. And Bethany is competing in Australia and New Zealand at the moment in the World Surf League. Bethany, it's great to speak with you. I wish you all the very best. Thank you so much for having me. Have a lovely day. I want you now to meet Rika Roy. Rika is the host of a cricket show in India called Turning Point. It's for New Delhi Television, NDTV. And she's been in Australia for the Women's T20 World Cup. Hi, Rika. Hello, Amanda. Now, at this tournament, the India team won all its group matches and for the first time over the seven years it's been held has made the final. Now, if you're listening to this after the final on Sunday evening, you'll know the result. Otherwise, it's India v Australia at the MCG. But, Rika, what's brought about this great improvement in the India team, would you say? This is exactly, you know, what we asked the coach of the Indian cricket team a few days ago as to what has heralded this transformation. And he put it down to a consistent captain, a captain who's been there with the team for uh, about a period of three years now. This is Harmanpreet Kaur. Harmanpreet Kaur, I'm talking about. Also, a very exciting bunch of cricketers coming through, particularly the the teenager, Shefali Verma, who's created a real impact in the tournament. She started the tournament um, ranked number 20 in the ICC rankings. She zoomed up to number one, curtsy the performances that uh, she gave at the World Cup. And she's played so well with the bat, this tournament. Absolutely. She's been uh, quite a revelation for India. Very young, 16 years old. Uh, She's done well at the juniors level, which is why she was put into the team. Uh, People expected her to do well, but not as well as uh, she has performed. Well, the other thing that has worked in India's favour with Thursday's semi-final against England was the weather. <laughs> the match Absolutely. was watched out, so uh, India well, advanced the English the captain final. said it'll be it'll be good if there are no jokes about English weather anymore. <laughs> um, well, it, it was really sad for England to go out in the way they did, not playing a single ball there at the Sydney Cricket Ground because of rain. Yes, but of course worked in India's favour. Being the higher placed team in the group round meant they automatically advanced to the final. 
absolutely. Uh, the tournament has been structured in a way that there is no room for the reserve day and that's a contract that all the participating teams signed with the ICC. Perhaps at that point of time, they should have had a re-look and told ICC, look, we need to have a reserve day because if there is a situation when matches are getting washed out, then teams, the deserving teams may get knocked out of the tournament, uh, which is why uh, Harman Preet Kaur said that they had in mind, even before the tournament started, that it was important for India to win all the matches in the group stage and stay on top. As they did. Well, now, we know that men's cricket is massively popular in India, Rika, and in a country with a population of 1.3 billion people, that is big. But what about the women's game in India? Well, I would say that the women's game is catching up. These girls are popular, maybe not as popular as the men's cricket team. But, well, you know, Shefali Verma today is a household name. Harman Preet Kaur is a household name. Right now, I would say because of the performance that they have given, not just the number of matches that they have won, but the brand of cricket that they have played has helped them become household names. And Indians love competition. Indians love attractive players, uh, which is why um, they are they're taking notice, they're sitting up and taking notice uh, of these players like Harman Preet, like Smriti Mandhana. And the next in the line are the sponsors. And I'm, I'm, I'm more than uh, sure that the sponsors are going to make a beeline for these girls once they return home. Well, what has the, the increasing professionalisation of the sport globally meant for those players in India, economically, socially? Um, well, let me talk about the leg spinner of the team, Punam Yadav. You know, she comes from a lower background. Her father was a shopkeeper. When she got a contract with the Board of Control for Cricket in India, she bought her father a couple of cows. The cows have been productive. They, they've started dairy farming and the family is earning a lot more money. They've also got a proper house now. Um, the other thing, you know, what a lot of people in Australia were surprised about is that Harman Preet Kaur's parents have traveled this far for the first time to watch her. Her mother never watched her play. Her father has watched her, but mother has never watched her play. The Harman Preet has been playing for a decade now. So this is for the first time that the parents have traveled out of the country and they will be at the MCG in the final. And, and, and that is a huge thing for these girls. Their parents were not wealthy enough to even think of traveling this far. So this is what is the social transformation, that they now have the money, they now have the means. And well, uh, cricket has made them worldly wise. Do uh, girls learn to play cricket at school in India? Um, when you look at this bunch of cricketers who have come here for the ICC World uh, T20, I doubt if any one of them have learned playing cricket at school. It was not a sport in school until three, four years back. Shefali Verma, for example, was initiated into the sport by her father. Uh, she used to go and train with her brothers. She had to play cricket with the boys, which is why her father gave her the kind of haircut that a she short has. Haircut. The short haircut. She says that she had to uh, disguise as her brother in one tournament. And she also won the man of the tournament in that uh, event. The man of was, the tournament. <laughs> yes, yeah. the man of the tournament. 
because she disguised as her brother so you know similar stories all over they would have played with their you know cousins or their brothers it wouldn't have been at the school level but right now because of the success of these girls because you know many people now see sports as a career in india that uh, several sports are being introduced at uh, the school level and cricket is one of them Enrique Roy is an Indian sports journalist in Australia for the Women's T20 World Cup. For New Delhi TV, she's the host of a cricket program called Turning Point. Rika, it's lovely to meet you. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me on your show, Amanda. And the Women's T20 World Cup culminates in the final between India and Australia at the Melbourne Cricket Ground on International Women's Day. If you're listening to this after that, you'll already know the result. At this time of broadcast, of course, it's all ahead of us. This is Sporty with Amanda Smith. just around the halfway mark of the 2020 AFLW season now, the women's Aussie rules football, and to date a dozen players have had serious knee injuries to their anterior cruciate ligament. A ruptured ACL is a common injury in this sport and plenty of men have had their seasons ended by it, but it's an injury that women are much more likely to suffer than men it seems. So why is this? And do sports women generally get more injuries than men? Professor Kay Crosley is the Director of the Latrobe Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre. Can we say, Kay, that sports women get more injuries than sportsmen? The answer is yes. So for years in Australia, we haven't really known this because ACL injuries tended to occur in women playing netball and in men playing football. And so we've always known they're a big problem, but we didn't sort of realise how much more of a problem it was for women. But in other countries and in other sports, we see... Um, where, say, men and women are both playing basketball or volleyball or European handball, we've known for quite a while now that women are probably twice, if not more, likely to tear their ACL than the men if they're participating in similar sports. Yes, well, with the the advent of the AFLW, I presume as well as the W League for soccer, the NRL Women's Comp, uh, the Women's T20 World Cup for cricket, for example, in other words, women playing traditionally male sports at a high level, I guess that presents some interesting research opportunities for you. Yes, it does. I suppose the first thing I want to say, it's great that it provides these physical activity and sporting opportunities for women that perhaps haven't had those opportunities. And we know that in many sports, women have had to sort of cease participating in them when they were quite young. So it's great that they've got the opportunity, but obviously with that opportunity does come a heightened risk. And I think it's amplified in our football codes and in our cricket codes because women haven't been participating in those sports for that period of time. So for example, if a male is drafted to play um, NRL or, or AFL, they've been actually participating in a very high level of that sport for all of their life. Whereas a woman who's drafted into playing the elite leagues of, of any of the any of the football codes probably had to stop playing at an elite level um, for those codes quite early in life. So they might have been an elite athlete, but they might have come from sports such as netball, track and field, tennis, for example. So they just haven't developed the football-specific skills and that makes them at even greater risk of injury than their male counterpart or if they had had all of those years of training. Do you know how much more likely women are to get ACL ruptures than men playing football? Well, it's very tricky at the moment. So in our current setting where we have this massive imbalance in training 
exposure, if you like, over the years, the risk is very high. So women are up to nine times more likely to tear their ACL than a man. As I said, in, in sports where they've had the same sort of exposure over many, many years, the, that risk is about double. So that's all things being equal, you're still twice as likely. And that's why things like these injury prevention programs are really, really critical. What we do know, especially from overseas, but also from some work done in Australia in men, is that if you do these injury preventions, you can halve your risk of injury. So you don't have to put up with that double injury risk. So what work are you doing with the AFLW right now that might lead to reducing these knee injuries, for example? So when we knew that the AFL was introducing a women's league, we knew it would be a problem. So we've been partnering with the AFL now for a couple of years, initially finding out what we needed to include in a program and how it might differ from some of the traditional male-centred programs. And then we rolled that out last year. We had to work very, very quickly to roll that out. And obviously we're not seeing a massive reduction in injuries yet, but it's going to take some time before women have got the real benefits from being involved in these programs so that they can get the better movement patterns, strength, etc. that they need. You mentioned that women just haven't been playing these traditionally male sports at a high level since they were young. That's a possible factor in greater injuries that like the ACL tears. Possible other factors that have been mooted for the AFLW season is that because it's played at this time of year, the grounds are harder. That's another possible factor, yeah? Yes, ground surface and ground hardness has been associated with um, knee injuries. But remembering that the sort of research you need to do to test that are well are difficult to do. Yes, you can't really make players jump up and down on hard surfaces to test. Correct. And so it is very, very tricky to do that. But I think that is something that the AFL are aware of. Um, Other things that have been mooted are things like football boots. And we're seeing there's a bit more work in the football boot design, not only for Australian football, but also for all of the football codes. Some of the other things that we know are related are things like how strong the individual. So this doesn't really matter whether you're a male or a female. If you are stronger, if you jump and land in a certain way, it makes you less likely to tear your ACL. It's just that many more women fall into that being not as strong and perhaps landing or turning and twisting with patterns that really do put their knees at risk of injury. And that's what we try and address with these um, intervention programs. So how to, how to jump, how to land safely, how to turn safely how to stop safely so things like deceleration are really big problems in a lot of the football codes in particular AFL taking a mark landing from a mark tackling being tackled picking up a ball from the ground for example and they're important not only for ACLs but also for injuries such as shoulder injuries and head slash concussion injuries as well. Yes, I mean, we have been talking very much about anterior cruciate ligament, the, the, the knee injury, but are women generally playing these sports more susceptible to a variety of injuries? Yeah, so there is a variety and they, they are different to the men and they probably will change over time. So men have more perhaps groin pain or hamstring pain than women. Uh, women are getting a lot of finger injuries, shoulder injuries, which again goes back to marking and also landing from falls. And I think as the women become more skilled in those areas, those injuries will probably drop off, but injuries might, like groin pain and hamstring pain, for example, might get greater. Right. (laughs) That's a trade-off. Now, there's some thought, Kay, that the menstrual cycle may play a role in susceptibility to injury for women. First of all, why is that? What's the suspected link? 
Yeah, so there's been a suspected link for a while and I think the first thing just to point out is a lot of those studies are done in animals and it's very, very difficult to do really high-quality studies in women because you've really got to be measuring their menstrual cycle or their menstrual status at any particular day, uh, which is quite tricky to do accurately. Um, But there have been some studies showing that at different phases of your menstrual cycle you might have variations in our ligament laxity similar to how women can become more lax during their pregnancy so just how the female hormones actually affect ligaments so that's sort of been known for a while but how that actually translates to having an injury is really really unclear so the evidence on that is really not very strong um, but it is something that is talked about because women are more likely to get injuries people go well okay what's the difference between men and women and women have a menstrual cycle and men don't so I think there are a lot of factors around just trying to think about why women might be more likely to get injured but I think the evidence suggesting that it is the menstrual cycle that's related to injury is very very weak. Nevertheless are you looking into any possible links between the menstrual cycle and and injuries yourself? Yeah, so there's a couple of projects that are planned. So one is just generally looking at all of the factors you talked about. So ground hardness, footwear, temperature conditions, also menstrual status, strength, rage, all of those things we are starting to look at. The other area of research that Latrobe is doing with the AFL is actually looking at the menstrual cycle more holistically. So that is things like menstrual cramps, PMS, heavy bleeding, breast tenderness, some of the things that every woman experiences every cycle, but how that might also be impacting performance as well. And not only the sort of physical side of that, but also the social and psychological aspect. So, for example, if you were a woman playing netball, um, you would likely be coached by a woman and you probably have all your life. Whereas if you're a woman going into a football code right now, you're probably going to be coached by a man. And that's just the nature of of what we're dealing with um, sociologically at the moment. And so for women to feel comfortable talking about where they are in their menstrual cycle and any side effects they might be experiencing, even though they may be normal, but for example, they may not want to do marking drills if they've got a lot of breast tenderness and so for them just to be able to have those conversations with their coach and feel really comfortable about that but also making it easier for any men that are in that sort of space to feel comfortable talking to the women that they're coaching as well. Yes well it's interesting isn't it because as you say these traditionally male team sports that women are now doing so well in are they are often coached by men that's still where the the greater coaching expertise and experience is But I've heard a line used that it means that women are kind of being coached like little men. Yeah, and and that's a really good point. And I must admit, throughout the whole time we've been working within the AFL in, in the elite or in the community setting, there's all the coaches we have worked with who volunteer to be part of our projects are really, really keen to learn more. They're not afraid of, of any conversation and they really just want to do the best that they can for the women that they're coaching. But I think that for a lot of people going into this for the first time, they just don't know. And so, yes, they just treat them like juniors, if you like. But providing a lot more information to people about how to coach women, I think, is a really important element. And then the element that we haven't done any work in, but I'd be really keen to, is looking at whether women actually do respond differently to exercise psychologically as well so are there different cues that we should use when we're coaching women to coaching men and it probably isn't that simple it probably isn't sort of biologically based there's probably um, different personality types within both sexes and genders that we need to be um, targeting our coaching to as well so that's a really another interesting area to to pursue. All this, of course, does... um, Well, it could be a reason to argue that women shouldn't be playing these sports, that they were developed by men to suit 
the male body. What do you reckon? Yeah, well, I don't agree with that. So my previous, before I sort of went into academia, I was a sports physiotherapist and the sport I worked with was athletics, track and field. And not long before I started, women weren't able to triple jump, for example, because it was bad for their pelvis. They weren't able to pole vault. They weren't able to run on the track more than three kilometres. They weren't able to run marathons. So those things are not that long ago when we thought women weren't capable of running a marathon. And now we know that women excel at some of these sports. So I think that getting women and men physically active has to be a priority but obviously we do need to look after the safety and I think a lot of that is really how we train men and women and I think one of the biggest challenges is that um, if we've got women dropping out of sport particularly in those sort of teen years I think if we can improve if you like the strength and health literacy and physical literacy of all people but in particular women going through adolescence then I think we're going to a have a much healthier society but also make them more robust and less likely to get injured. And Professor Kay Crosley is the Director of the La Trobe Sport and Exercise Medicine Research Centre. Kay, thank you so much for joining us on Sporty. Thank you so much for having me. And here on RN and on the ABC Listen app, Sporty is produced by Rosa Ellen and I'm Amanda Smith. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.